the upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. Now, this is New Generation Declassified, and you're listening to a New Generation Declassified episode here exclusively on the two-man power trip of wrestling's podcasting empire. If you didn't know by now, my name is Chad, and every single week, we take a journey back in time. We go back and look at the finer days of the World Wrestling Federation, maybe the forgotten days. I'll call them the finer days because I have an affinity for them. But we go back and we look at the WWF's new generation. And this week, of course, it's no different. But I am solo once again. And I decided to pull out a topic that I've loved to uh, discuss on the other side of the podcasting coin. But I'll definitely bring it this way here today. Going to talk a little bit about the WWF run of one Dean Douglas. Yes, my tag team partner. From the Triple Threat Podcast that's every single week broadcast on Vince Russo's Russo brand. Myself, John Paz, and Shane doing it the franchise's way. Uh, the very fun podcasting uh, methods done on the Triple Threat Podcast. It's always something when Shane has a live mic. And on the Triple Threat Podcast, we get the world according to the franchise. Uh, whether it's talking about his history, talking about something going on in the wrestling world, sometimes even just current events. Anytime the franchise opens his mouth, there's always something that you're going to listen to and he's going to tell it his way. And it's uh, the greatest. It's unfiltered. It's uncensored. It's all those great uh, little uh, <laughs> descriptive words we could give it. If franchise is doing a show, you know it's going to be 100% legit. But I'll tell you something, and this is something John and I have always talked about uh, between myself and uh, and him and in cars and on podcasts and in our personal lives. And before we started podcasting, we always loved the Dean Douglas character. Now, why, you ask? On paper, Dean Douglas, a evil uh, professor of some sort, uh, seven PhDs. Not necessarily somebody that's jumping off the page when you think about a wrestling character, but the Dean brought to life by Shane, by the franchise uh, in itself is a remarkable character that had a, a very short run, but the impact was definitely felt because the old what would have been if so-and-so or such-and-such happened to Dean Douglas during his brief run in the WWF from the summer of 1995 to just about uh, January 1st, 1996, uh, small amount of time, but a lot happened in that time. And we'll chronicle it here today. It's something that I'll give you. It's almost like the Dean Douglas guide, uh, for somebody again, that's had to go back and watch a lot of Dean Douglas, uh, footage and somebody who did enjoy the Dean Douglas character while he was around for that period of time between 95 and early 96. Uh, it's, it's something that if you don't know, or you heard about it, you didn't watch it. You definitely got to go judge for yourself. And what you think this character could have been, should have been, would have been had things started to fall uh, a little differently. So 
We all know about the franchise and what he did in ECW, just absolutely transforming his persona and becoming the uh, absolute captain of the football team, the man that everybody wanted to be and that the ladies wanted to be with, uh, the evil franchise. Well, the evil franchise became one hell of a competitor when he hit the ECW stage and all those great matches uh, that he had leading up to his time in ECW really set the stage for what he would do uh, in the early run of ECW from 1993 till about May 1995, uh, just about, uh, I guess maybe around June is when he departed and uh, finally did leave ECW. But in that two-year period, completely transforming the persona of the franchise and making it one of the most talked about and most hated heels in the wrestling business. Uh, a guy that you love to hate. The franchise is definitely a guy that you would love to hate because damn, he's so good, but man, he's such an asshole. And Shane played that uh, up to the, to the highest extent and franchise I think is one of the most beloved and most influential ECW competitors that ever stepped through the ECW arena there in South Philly. But the franchise departs. The franchise leaves ECW uh, and heads back to the WWF. Now, we remember, as longtime fans, the franchise as Shane Douglas, just as no uh, gimmick needed, but Shane Douglas in 1990, in early 1991, in the WWF, uh, as just a um, you know high-flying babyface, a guy that you could tell that was uh, on TV every week, but had something there and you knew who he was because you watched WCW. You knew who he was from the dynamic dudes. Um, yeah, obviously he had his, uh, his early days in the UWF becoming the UWF TV champion in his first match uh, in the UWF. Uh, but him jumping to the WWF in 1990, you know, pretty bold move and a way for him who had a little bit of a, of exposure in WCW to start to grow the uh, the name in the WWF uh, at that time, of course, the WWF being the place to be and the land of Hulk Hogan and the Macho Man and the Ultimate Warrior and Rowdy Roddy Piper and all those giant polarizing names of the early 90s. Uh, Shane Douglas had a really great uh, carved out spot at the beginning of the card. If you're on a house show, Shane maybe is going to be in the first match or in maybe at the TV tapings in a dark match, but he was in uh, matches with guys that would have a great opener, whether it was a Buddy Rose or if it was a Steve Lombardi, uh, somebody that would fit well with him uh, to kick start a card. You look at uh, the pay-per-views of 1990, SummerSlam 90, uh, Survivor Series 90. Shane is in the dark match. And why do you think, why do you put a guy like Shane in the dark match there? It's because you know he's going to have a great match. It's going to kickstart the night. And in the WWF in 1990, with his big, bright, fluorescent orange tights, um, he stood out. He had a great look, the blonde hair, nice tan, great build, and those big fluorescent orange tights. He fit perfectly into what we saw in the WWF in 1990 uh, to include even a great, you know, generic WWF uh, style theme music. Uh, now, and if you hear Shane on the Triple Threat podcast talk about it, or he's done it in a few shoot interviews over the years, he talks about the idea of having um, almost it was a rock and roll gimmick that was pitched to him um, where he had a theme song that was being created by Jimmy Hart. And it was almost like a Bon Jovi style character. 
that he would have played that, you know, <laughs> you think back, you, you, you see the characters they had at the time and how great and over the music was. Very curious to know what that would sound like. If that demo could hit the, uh, the, the, <laughs> the internet in some way, shape or form, I would love to hear it because I would love to see Shane, who's got some musical chops himself, you know, perform this, uh, this musical persona created by the WWF, but it, it didn't work. And it's not because of anything um, nefarious. There was nothing that uh, Shane was angry about or whatever. It was an obviously a very sad situation. His father was not doing well and he departed the WWF in 1991 after the Royal Rumble, where he had a great showing and it was put over to the moon by uh, Gorilla Monsoon on commentary for how great his uh, his showing was in the Royal Rumble that year. But Shane had to depart. Uh, he would come back just for a cup of coffee in 1991 before ultimately leaving and having to tend to some family issues. Uh, but leaving on very good terms with Vince McMahon and having the old proverbial door wide open for whenever he would be coming back which he would in 1995. But before we uh, we get to that, we saw Shane go from WWF in 1991 to WCW in 1992, where he would have the great tag team with Ricky Steamboat. That really was a turning of the corner in Shane's career. And uh, whether or not, you know, if he stayed, maybe he turns heel. If we could have ever seen that, maybe we saw the franchise in WCW in 92, but we would see it in 93 when he gets to ECW and the connection with Eddie Gilbert and Paul Heyman. And obviously uh, the rest is history. Uh, but when he decided to rejoin the WWF and was proposed the Dean with his course, the paddle, the board of education, uh, Shane tells the story on many a shoot interview, many a podcast that he was basically uh, told under false pretenses that this was the right move for his family. This was the right move. For his career, you know, X number of dollars would be uh, ultimately made, but it just did not hold up to what Vince McMahon's uh, maybe overzealous uh, pitch was to him and his wife at the time who were flown to New York City and driven to Stanford, were, were wined and dined and absolutely, you know, <laughs> fed a, a bunch of bull that wouldn't come true. Uh, and although the Dean was positioned as a top heel at one point, it just did not match the the plans that were pitched at first. Uh, but how he was introduced, classic WWF style, the vignettes. And the vignettes were off the charts good. He would interrupt uh, a match. He would have a Dean Douglas classroom segment where he would pop in. He would analyze a babyface's match. He would give them a grade, usually not really being very favorable to the, to the babyface. And that would kind of be, uh, you know, how we would start to dislike uh, this character. This is how we would end up saying, well, you know, uh, he's going to put his foot in his mouth sooner or later and somebody's going to call him on it uh, because those segments were well done. And, and again, it's the WWF magic that at that time, it's like everything that they could possibly do from a television point of view was done so perfectly. And those lessons that he would teach about things, he would say teamwork and they would talk about, you know, a tag team match or he would talk about, um, you know, a guy's uh, uh, foul mouth in a, in a promo or he would talk about how he didn't like, you know, the way they performed a move or this or that. It just it's the little things that they stress that Shane would mention in these vignettes that would ultimately, like I said, start a feud or just make you believe this guy was just a dick. 
You know, this this guy with his glasses and his teacher attire, his finest polo and, uh, t- you know, the just the, the look on his face of disgust made you hate him as a teacher, which Shane goes on to say in many interviews, Vince thought of this character as somebody that would viscerally be hated because Vince hated his teachers and specifically a very monotone sound to him. And if you go back and listen to those promos, you hear a very monotone delivery by the franchise. Uh, It doesn't match what we know of the passionate franchise Shane Douglas promo. It was a very manufactured, put-together style that I know Shane has, has also said on many occasions that he felt as if if he tried it Vince's way, he could do it Vince's way. But if he was allowed to try it in his way, maybe he could flip the the script. Maybe he could make it to what his character would be and almost be a uh, an extension of the franchise where you'd have him performing as the Dean, but having that same flavor, the guy that we all knew from ECW. Uh, and, and in some of these vignettes, you know, the classroom has got some drapery of, uh, you know, some, you know, Greek letters or make it look like it's a college campus, which they didn't really identify what kind of school the dean was teaching in. Was he teaching in a college? Was he teaching in high school? Was he supposed to be scaring kids in elementary school? Well, I'm not sure, but I'm going to assume because of the Greek lettering behind him that it had to be sometime in college, which is... I mean, if you've been to college, you know it is not uh, the place you want to be to have a monotone teacher uh, talking down to you in any way, shape, or form. But how those vignettes were kind of set up where he would have a monitor kind of off to the side, uh, and he would basically start to run down the persona of the guy. I remember there's the one where he's got Diesel, uh, and he's looking at a match with Diesel, and I believe it's King or Sir Moe. And he breaks down the association of the word cool and, you know, stressing Big Daddy cool, not looking very cool while Sir Mo is uh, kind of giving him uh, his comeuppance and, uh, and beating him down and also reflecting him as the champion at the time. Again, it's positioning Dean as a heel against all of the baby faces. So <laughs> where he's going to rip Diesel and, uh, and give him a big fat D as a grade. He's giving him a grade of defeated because he is not the champion. He's kind of uh, showing him to be. But again, it was just that absolute delivery that he had that was monotone. That is the vision of Vince McMahon. Now, there's a story that Shane tells where uh, he basically uh, was ready to show Vince the franchise uh, take on the Dean character. Vince had to step out to take a phone call. Vince then, uh, excuse me, Shane then performed it for the room. They all thought it was great. When Vince came back and he did it, Vince said uh, he likes it his way, pulled the room, the whole room agreed, and that kind of was the writing on the wall to show Shane that everybody's just going to agree with whatever Vince says and not challenge it. Now you're asking yourself, well, you know, maybe he could have just tried it the the way he wanted, maybe on camera, and then uh, apologize later. Well, he would do that, but towards the end of the Dean's run. And we'll talk about that in a, in a couple of minutes um, because who did he end up getting positioned with? Well, you kind of teased off the top 
um, something with Razor Ramon uh, from the very start, but also Shawn Michaels. Uh, the, the thing with Shawn Michaels and, and Shane in 1995, uh, everybody kind of knows the stories. There was a lot of, uh, of absolute uh, visceral heat between the click and Shane. And it's been talked about to death in shoot interviews. I mean, I can't really regurgitate anything that's not already out there that you could go and look for yourself. Uh, everybody's talked about it. There's a shoot interview with Shawn Michaels from the early 2000s where he talks about it. There's plenty of interviews with Shane where he talks about it. There's plenty of interviews with Scott Hall and Kevin Nash and Sean Waltman where they all kind of pick out their own little nuances of this, uh, you know, this, this interfeuding between Shane and members of the click. Uh, but the Dean was positioned for Shawn Michaels very, very early, uh, including one of the segments where Dean is deep inside one of the trucks um, of the WWF, one of their production trucks, you know, with the old Telestrator and watching a Shawn Michaels and Jerry Lawler match. And that's where they kind of lay the eggs of him starting to, you know, take little shots at Shawn Michaels, who at the time, was the Intercontinental Champion, not yet World Champion, um, and on the rise as a babyface. He had just turned face uh, in the spring. He had beaten Jeff Jarrett for the Intercontinental Championship. He had the great match with Razor Ramon at SummerSlam 95, and the Dean coming in at the position he was in would end up taking uh, that spot where he was going to have some uh, have a program with, uh, with Sean, and it started with just a simple critique, the, uh, you know, the backstage uh, vignette where, you know, once the Dean scratches his nails across the board, it's uh, all she wrote. Then it's off to the races and the Shawn Michaels, uh, Dean Douglas feud was ready to begin. And, you know, and looking at the small sample size of Shane's uh, time as Dean Douglas, you know, he's really just tied to Razor Ramon and Shawn Michaels. And that's not a bad duo to be team with in 95, because as we've talked about many, 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 many times on this show, those top five guys in the promotion at the time being Bret Hart, the undertaker, big daddy, cool diesel, Shawn Michaels, razor Ramon. Well, you slide the Dean right in there. He's feuding with the, uh, the, you know, two of the five essential baby face talents that the WWF has to offer uh, in terms of matches. There's a lot out there. You know, you can obviously go on to Peacock, like I was singing the praises of last week, and you can find all the raw matches of Dean Douglas. Uh, there's a lot of squashes, a ton of squashes, but that was to help build uh, the character. Uh, but he's also got a few uh, pretty good ones in there. He's got a few matches with the one, two, three kid on TV. He's got a couple of matches with Hakushi. He's got matches with Barry Horowitz. Um, but the thing that I think everybody remembers the most about that Dean Douglas character is the 1995 intercontinental championship forfeiture of one Shawn Michaels to Dean Douglas at the October 1995 in your house. Um, which, you know, in itself is an absolute episode. I'll cover it briefly here. Uh, but as I said, they were building to the Shawn Michaels, uh, Shane Douglas showdown to include a very memorable episode of raw where Shane talks about it being called the Bill Watts massacre, where Bill Watts has all the baby faces getting destroyed by the heels. And that's how we kind of see the show, uh, going off the air. Uh, recently, Jim Cornette talked about it on one of his uh, Jim Cornette Experience episodes where that was actually uh, reshot 
out of order and how it was filmed because Vince McMahon didn't like the way that Watts presented the heels going up so strongly, which included the Dean and Shawn Michaels having a absolutely uh, ferocious battle outside the ring where uh you know shane gives it to sean i mean they are they look like they're some pretty uh stiff blows but it just goes to show you how great shane was as a performer i mean it's a very very uh intense beatdown on the outside where you know he leaves Shawn michaels lane and you think wow man here we go we're off to the races uh but we get to that october 1995 in your house and that is around the time of the infamous uh massacre of in buffalo or Sy- uh, syracuse excuse me syracuse new york where Shawn michaels was allegedly uh beat up by nine thugs as the wwf told us outside of a nightclub in syracuse new york which as the story would go was uh one marine who uh didn't like Shawn michaels uh play hating towards his uh, girl and uh the kind of got his uh butt handed to him and uh they caused uh, some other issues to go uh, kind of throughout the, uh, the the company to include uh, one of Shawn Michaels' quick little sabbaticals where he handed over the Intercontinental Championship rather than drop it to, uh, to Dean, which in the full story arc really would lead to Shawn Michaels winning the WWF title at WrestleMania 10. But in the story itself against the Dean, he forfeits the belt rather than drops it to Dean. Maybe, you know, they use the concussion or something to kind of maybe make him slip on a banana peel or just have the Dean flat out cheat. Um, but it turns into this real wonky um, double title change where Shawn Michaels forfeits the belt, hands it over to Shane. Shane poses with the belt. His music plays. He's introduced as the new intercontinental champion and has to immediately defend the title against Razor Ramon, Scott Hall that evening, right after that. And about 12 minutes later, Scott Hall, Razor Ramon is the new Intercontinental Champion. The date on that is October 22nd, 1995. It's the fourth in your house pay-per-view. Uh, it's in Canada. It's a very odd show, um, but this really standing out big time because uh, it's technically the shortest Intercontinental title reign in the history of the prestigious title, um, a title known for guys being the workhorses of the company. And obviously Shane being so proficient in the ring, you would think maybe this would be the belt that would propel him uh, to uh, to new heights, but no, it was uh, ripped right off of him. And again, that's another great story that he tells in many shoot interviews where he shows up for his meeting and Vince is talking to him and kind of points off into the distance. And Scott Hall is sitting on top of one of the production boxes and is brought in to kind of uh, explain the, uh, the finish of what's going down uh, that night. But you just kind of think what would have been had the belt been dropped clean to Shane that night? Um, obviously rematches, obviously, you know, a p- potential build where Shane has said also in some of those interviews that, it ultimately would lead to uh, flipping back of the title. And when uh, Sean would become champion, you know, a feud with the Dean and Shawn Michaels over the, uh, the, the world title. Now I'm not saying the Dean becoming world champion, but as Shawn Michaels needs contenders, there's a guy he's already had a pretty decent feud with over the intercontinental title. Boom. It's already set for you. Uh, but that's October uh, 1995. And it's almost an accelerated uh, October, November, where throughout that time he feuds with Razor Ramon. They uh, they have matches on Raw, uh, but it builds to the Survivor Series, 
where they have one of my personal favorite matches of all time, just because I love the creativity behind it. It's the 1995 Survivor Series, November 19th, 1995. The wild card match, which was basically their way of throwing names into a hat and pairing them as teams in the classic Survivor Series style. So eliminations uh, throughout. Uh, the team of Ahmed Johnson, Shawn Michaels, Psycho Sid, and the British Bulldog taking on the Dean, Owen Hart, Razor Ramon, and Yoko Zuna. Uh, it's one of those things where it's a little odd. You know, it's 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 definitely a intriguing pairing. If you switch it around a little bit more, you know, maybe it's one of those things where they could have just had a straight up heel versus babyface uh, contest, and it would have been a little more understandable. You know, the the heels outnumber. The baby faces anyway. Uh, Ahmed Johnson was just debuting in the company that night. So it's almost like it was a guy we didn't even know that was going to get a spotlight here. Uh, but Ahmed, Sid, and Razor Ramon, you know, three baby faces. But it's just, it's a little questionable. They just turned the British Bulldog heel a few months prior. Hadn't really taken off in the way you would had assumed when it happened. But also, you have Owen Hart and Yokozuna, who were tag team champions uh, not too uh, not too long before. You, you have obviously Dean, and you have Sid, who Sid was kind of in limbo at this point. He wasn't really being utilized in the way you would think. He had his feud with Diesel in the summer; it didn't really pan out the way it should have as well. And it's kind of these guys are thrown into this match, and and Dean sees an early exit, but you know a great miscommunication play with Scott Hall, Razor Ramon, to continue the hatred between those two. So it kind of, it works, but it's just really, it's a weird, weird match. And I, I believe Bulldog Owen, or excuse me, Bulldog Shawn Michaels and Ahmed end up kind of getting the win here, but it, it's just, it's a very weird match. Uh, but Dean nonetheless getting a, a pretty big spotlight on the Survivor Series pay-per-view. Uh, the following night, he has a rematch with Razor Ramon, uh, it's in Richmond, Virginia, and this is the night where Shane helps uh, hurts his back to the point where he's going to, you know, go to management and tell them he's his back is broken. He went and got his his back looked at. A doctor uh, had assessed that his back was broken, and this was the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back because uh, they just flat out didn't believe him, and it led to a, an incident at Madison Square Garden where uh, he was accused of not wanting to perform that night. And uh, basically, you know, uh, in, in no words uh, less, basically leaving the WWF because he, was, uh, he wasn't able to perform and he was being questioned in the match itself and the night itself. Uh, is November 25th, 1995. Uh, so it's only less than 10 days removed from the Survivor Series. The match was supposed to be Savio Vega taking on uh, the Dean. Um, and if you, for your trivia buffs out there, the Dean was actually filled in for that night by Isaac Yankum, uh, DDS, uh, Jerry Lawler's personal dentist. Uh, but um, he was sent out there that night uh, before he left to cut a, quote, franchise promo in the uh, words of Vince McMahon. And uh, I'll read you the uh, the comments here that are on the, uh, the website describing uh, the night itself. It says, Savio Vega pins Isaac Yankum DDS, who subbed for an injured Shane Douglas. Uh, prior to the bout, Douglas took the mic and said the New York State Athletic Commission wouldn't let him compete due to a slipped disc in his back. 
He then introduced Isaac Yankum as his replacement. This was Douglas's MSG return after more than four years, but it was also his last ever Madison Square Garden appearance. So there's another trivia question for you trivia buffs out there. November 25th, 1995, in front of 7,000 screaming WWF fans, uh, the, the the Shane Douglas MSG era came to an end. Uh, he would leave the building that night. It would not be a very uh, happy uh, departure. Um, and uh, basically, this is the writing of the epitaph here for Shane in the WWF as the uh, pay-per-view that would take place in December at the Hershey Park Arena, uh, December 17th, so uh, less than a month later. Uh, Shane was due to wrestle Ahmed Johnson that night. Now they had started a program with Ahmed Johnson on television where he was uh, being critiqued by the Dean. There's a very, um, it's a very interesting outside the ring exchange during an interview with uh, Jerry Lawler uh, after an Ahmed Johnson match where uh, Shane comes out and there's a confrontation between the Dean and Ahmed. Uh, which would help build this match that would never take place. And again, Shane dressed in the full Dean attire comes out with the music, the whole nine yards uh, in front of the crowd. And he's there to do one thing. And that's introduced uh, nature boy, buddy Landell to take his place in this match at the Hershey park arena for the December 1995 in your house, a house that I've uh, a show I've talked about many times as being one of the least successful pay-per-views in the history of the WWF. Uh, the the buy rate was so low they had to end up showing matches on television because this pay-per-view was so poorly received that they had to do something. And what they did was they went ahead and they uh, put a bunch of the matches on superstars and also even running the main event on raw. I mean, <laughs> you know, if you want to send some desperation, they showed for free Bret Hart and the British bulldog in a very bloody match uh, because there's a hard way uh, quote unquote uh, cut to Bret Hart during this match that uh, he bleeds like a stuck pig. If you know Bret Hart, you know that it might not have actually been a hard way. It might have been something that was planned to get around the uh, lack of blood they were using at the time in the WWF. Um, but at, on this night, where Shane is due to wrestle Ahmed Johnson, uh, he comes to the ring and basically cuts the same promo saying he is not cleared to wrestle. But there's a little difference this time to Shane as he comes out, as we get to see, and this is probably the only time we're ever going to see it. We got to see the franchise on WWF television. And I've told him this many a times, and I'm sure this is something that he absolutely did on purpose. The monotone is dropped and the, the, <laughs> the franchise, <laughs> you see the glimpses. He's back. He cuts a promo. He uses a few colorful words. Uh, he introduces Buddy Landell as a replacement. He, Buddy Landell is beaten 40 seconds by Ahmed Johnson with the Pearl River Plunge. Shane leaves the, the ringside area to never be seen on WWF television ever again. And that was the epitaph. That was the closing of the book of Shane Douglas in the WWF as he would be back in ECW. Uh, not too long after that, he would return uh, in a very surprising fashion in January 1996. Um, 
And it's almost like if you blink, you missed it. But it is such a compelling few months with twists and turns and so many stories in between. And if you let me be your guide for this, I implore you to go listen to the Triple Threat podcast on the Vince Russo, Russo brand, where for years we've talked about Dean Douglas in so many different facets. And Shane has such great stories about his run. And again, it's such a small sample. But in that small sample, so much went on. That if you if you haven't experienced it before, take my word for it. If you listen to this show and go back and watch some Dean Douglas uh, footage, it's something that you will get something from. It's not a bad character, but it just you can look back on it and say what could have been, what should have been. They definitely misused him, and from a personal point of view, we can't ever know what Shane personally felt but was just completely lied to and felt uh, fed a, a very poor bill of goods by the WWF as they were all starving during that fall of 1995. Nobody was making money and they were run ragged. They were all overseas. They were in Canada. They were traveling like crazy and it really beat everybody down. And Shane, you know, I, I, the slip disc might have been a slip disc from the heavens because he was able to get out of that that deal. He was able to leave the WWF in J- early January 96 and be back and healed and in ECW at the end of 1996. And again, as we all say, the rest is history as the franchise would go on to be the absolute uh, icon there of ECW along with fellow triple threat members, you know, Chris Candido, Brian Lee, Bam Bam Bigelow, the queen of extreme and so many other great personalities that he worked with along the way. If it wasn't for this run as Dean Douglas, who knows what could have been because that visceral uh, hatred inside the franchise, it was fueled by this 1995 WWF run. And that was almost some of the best parts of the franchise persona. Now, little Easter egg for those ECW fans out there. As we talked about with Johnny Candido uh, a little over a month ago, if you can find the Halloween 1997, uh, 97, 98 um, ECW, I, oh gosh, I should have had this prepared, but this is my lack of professionalism. I present to you today, Chris Candido and Shane Douglas dress up as their body, Donna and Dean Douglas personas for one last time at a Halloween show for ECW in Connecticut uh, to also include a blue meanie Shawn Michaels uh, <laughs> impersonation uh, going on at this show. Uh, there's pictures on there online. There, there's, there's video. If you can find it via the RF video fan cam. And that was the last time we would have seen the Dean. Uh, there's a Dean Douglas pro wrestling tease uh, shirt that, uh, that John had designed. That is pretty damn cool. I own one. He owns one. We uh, we wear them all the time if we were on uh, Triple Threat, if you watch us on video with the Russo brand. Uh, but that's where he lives. He lives in that shirt. He lives in the very few Dean Douglas pieces of memorabilia that are out there. As we talked about with the, uh, the trading card uh, database, there are a few Dean Douglas cards out there. There were some from WWF Magazine. There were a couple that were released overseas. But they're out there. You can get them if you want. You got to pay a hefty price for them. There's some Dean Douglas WWF promos out there. Uh, Add them to your collection. But know this. He does not sign autographs as the Dean. He only signs them as Shane. And there is a great story we'll close on. Uh, During that brief time in the WWF, 
Shane was sent to a hospital uh, to kind of cheer up patients. And uh, the WWF would do stuff like this all the time. I'm sure they still do today. And uh, Shane signed a Dean Douglas picture and he signed it for a, a, a young patient and declared that would be the last person who would have the Dean Douglas autograph. And he has not signed Dean Douglas since. If you ever see a Dean Douglas uh, autograph out there, <laughs> more times than not, if it's not a forgery, it is. it was signed in a very small amount of time. And if you see one, grab it because it's absolutely something that's uh, not seen very often. So we will close the book on Dean Douglas. I implore you all to go and check stuff out having to do with the uh, the great run there of the Dean and uh, my favorite, my buddy, uh, the franchise, Shane Douglas. Love that man to death and uh, will do anything to help get his career out there to the uh, to the great fans that do remember him and do love them some franchise Shane Douglas. So with that being said, if you want to follow me on social media, it's at Chad E&B and the new handle for me on Instagram is at IB exclusives. If you're ever so inclined to come and join me over there, my website is IB exclusives.com. I've got some really cool autograph signings coming up. Uh, just announced Jerry, the King Lawler and the hardcore legend, Mick Foley, uh, who will be signing autographs as part of private signings that I have coming up. Uh, please follow us, subscribe on a mailing list. There's some really cool names coming your way. Uh, this website is tmptempire.com. All the podcasts and under the TMPT umbrella in one place and beyond to include our association with the Russo brand and the franchise Shane Douglas. The Russo brand has the Triple Threat podcast exclusively. Catch us every week doing it the franchise's way. The only way that I like to do podcasting. Uh, but also catch me on Eyes Up Here with the Queen of Extreme, Francine. Hey, you hear some talk about Shane on there as well. It's patreon.com slash Francine podcast. Uh, I appreciate everybody for listening to this show and uh, supporting. And uh, for everybody who uh, loves them some Dean Douglas, this is your old buddy, the Chadster. I will catch you on the flip side. Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling. What the world is downloading.